0: Welcome to Success Stories, the podcast where outstanding women share their journey to leadership, the personal habits that have helped them succeed, and the projects they're passionate about. Join me, your host, Catherine Robson, as we redefine what success looks like. Annalie Killian is the Director of Human Networks at New York Innovation Agency Sparks and Honey. She has a long history of taking risks and reinventing herself and the businesses with which she works. From her early days as an anti-apartheid activist in her native South Africa, to awakening the innovation potential within Australia's financial services giant, AMP, she's now moved to the cutting edge of collaboration between man and machine, and the analysis that that can provide around human culture. She started her journey studying commerce and economics initially working from Deloitte as an auditor and accountant. However, her insatiable curiosity has propelled her to extend herself with programs at Melbourne Business School, MIT and Singularity University. Annalie has been honoured as a first mover fellow of the Aspen Institute and her move to New York is the fulfilment of a lifelong dream. What are you working on now? It sounds really exciting.
1: Well, I work at a in New York, Sparks and Honey, which is really a sort of a strategic insights, business intelligence and foresight agency. And what we do is we work with Fortune 500 brands to look at emerging trends in culture, because we believe that if you're not culturally relevant, nothing else matters. And that brands that track culture are able to spot um, and that's what we do with them is we're able to spot where the puck is going to be really really early on and that helps to inform their product and service innovation strategy as well as their business model strategy. And how do you do that? Oh we do that through a combination of data signals and platforms and a lot of data feeds that we track so we have a large data science team and AI, but we supplement that and complement that with human creativity. So we believe in the best of man and machine. My role here is to curate and direct a global network of the smartest people on the planet. So I have established an advisory board of chief executive officers, game changers, thought leaders at the edge of their game across 40 different industries, as well as a Global network of intelligence scouts on the ground in uh, different geographies around the world because there's nothing as valuable as on the ground insight in real time. And so all of these inputs are collated into our bespoke cultural intelligence system. And um, what we do every single day is we have a briefing that looks at how culture shifts in real time. 24 hours a day. And and that's uh,
0: global culture or just US global culture? Global
1: culture, global culture, yeah. And these trends then, you know, we help our clients to work out where should they be moving into next, what's coming up hot, How how is minds shifting and so that they can, in fact, be relevant with their innovation strategy. And big
0: change for you. So you spent a lot of time working for the big Australian corporate AMP in Australia what made you decide to take the big leap to leave the security of a big corporate salary to join a startup and move to New York?
1: Really, the move to New York came first because that was an ambition since I was a teenager. When I was at university, I curated a tour for students, university students. I got 40 students to come to New York and, and to America. And you were in South, South Africa. Africa at that time, yeah. So I put together a, a tour and a got 40 students to sign up and we went on a sort of safari across coast to coast in America. But our first stop was New York City. And at that time, South Africa was really fraught with a lot of political challenges. And as a child, I grew up an activist really in terms of not really accepting the status quo of the apartheid politics and trying to change that. And so when I first landed in New York, it felt to me like I was dropped into the middle of a Coke ad. You remember the one that went, I'd like to teach the world to sing in harmony. It's not perfect harmony, but it's as close as, as you're going to get because it's a real multicultural melting pot and it's a city of great creative diversity and tolerance and grit and I really love it and all the years that I've traveled to New York on business I've always just thought this is the place where I want to work and For many reasons, it didn't happen. I was divorced and had minor children. And so it was really difficult to move out of the country, take an international role until my youngest daughter finished high school. And as she put her pen down, I decided this is now mummy's time. (laughs) And she said, no, you're not going alone. I'm coming with. (laughs) So, So she's here with you? She's here with me. She's studying at the Fashion Institute of Technology, which is also a very reputable school she's doing advertising and communication there and also at the same time my eldest daughter announced that she was moving to Berlin so at that point in time I just thought okay look this is going to be a big move for all of us but it's not easy to make these big career moves ideally you don't make them at 55 you make them earlier but it's worked out really well for me.
0: And one of the things that I think is important is having the financial capability to make that sort of choice at any age, but particularly as you say at an age where you might be thinking more about will I retire in the next ten or fifteen years? Do I have the capability to take a cut in salary? How have you approached that?
1: Well, absolutely, I totally agree with you. I think the important thing is to make sure that you save consistently. I was also fortunate that I cashed in on the housing market in Australia and I've put much of my investments in the share market now in a balanced portfolio that is actually done very nicely. Thank you very much. But that's actually been very good in terms of enabling me to make a decision. And I'm not living off my capital. I'd put enough away for taking a literally a year off of unpaid work And I've allowed myself that opportunity. The other thing that I think is something that we don't really plan on, but it's sometimes a windfall along the journey is if you can engineer an exit along the way, I know of so many people for whom those exits seemed like a nightmare at the time, but they've unlocked the dream. So when I left South Africa, I left BHP Billiton because there was a major restructure And that facilitated my move to Australia. And this time around, you know, I left AMP and it facilitated my move to the US. And what a wonderful story.
0: (laughs) Well, and it seems like you're the sort of person who's not afraid to take a risk. So even going back all the way to when you were at Billiton and that period where you were the CEO of a not-for-profit organisation on succumbent from Billiton and, and the risks involved to you personally, physically seem from someone's perspective who's never lived through apartheid. Yeah. Unbelievable. What was that experience like and have you always been that sort of a risk taker?
1: You know, it's an interesting question because I don't think we take risk for the sake of risk. We are driven and I am driven by a purpose. And so if the purpose is strong and the call is strong, then sometimes you have no choice. But if you want to see that purpose fulfilled, you you calculate the risk. And so risk is not taken blindly. It's taken in a calculated way and you go for it. So the risk of coming to New York was a big one. I didn't really know how I would go, but it was the second time that I moved countries, not the first time. And so after the first time, I also managed to land on my feet. Eventually, it took a bit of time. But I backed myself because I thought, oh, I've done this before. And my first move internationally was without the benefit of social media and LinkedIn and, you know, like your past wasn't alive like it is now. Now, you know, there's too much alive, actually. But the risk was calculated in the context of the era in which we live and the fact that I felt that I had an international profile, I had an established network. And that I am a person of great personal resilience, that I knew that I could do this. I knew that it would be hard as well. I didn't I wasn't delusional about that. So just because you're resilient doesn't mean to say you don't feel something as hard. You still experience as as hard, but you just you're able to believe that it'll get better.
0: So tell us a bit about what that experience was. Oh in, was in and, South Africa yeah. when
1: I mean I think it was an accident of time and geography. I was born into an environment where I enjoyed great privilege as I grew up. Your family was an African? Yes, yeah. that's right. Yep. And so if you walk through life with open eyes, you kind of go, something not right here. Why are some of us privileges and opportunities that others don't have? And so since I was... In primary school, then later high school, I became quite politically active and super active when I was at university. And eventually, the South African police and the government at the time was very intolerant of any protesters. So that came at great personal risk. Um, and... You know, I was arrested uh, one time and I spent a night in jail and I just realized, oh my goodness, I don't think I am martyr material. I have to find a different way to be a change agent and I will be a change agent through work. And so I ended up using my professional life to be a change agent, to create opportunities for Cause people. Because you started
0: as an accountant, is that Yes, right? just
1: Deloitte, yes. Which
0: seems so foreign <laughs> now, seeing where you've ended up, yeah. you know, audit and accounting
1: seems so far away from... I've never regretted it because it was literally what launched me into the world of business and I could hold my own, I could speak the language of the boardroom. And that was a really good grounding in the background, but I ended up... Very shortly after leaving Deloitte, uh, joining my client, which was BHP Billiton. At that time, it was Aluminium Smelter in Richards Bay. And I was offered an opportunity to introduce quality circles in an Aluminium refinery where about 6,000 employees worked, of which probably 5,800 were uh, Zulu employees, many of whom didn't have an education, couldn't speak English, couldn't read and write. And that just felt so inherently so wrong. And so I've used this opportunity to develop a learning program for people to help them become supervisors, to in fact have self expression at work, to be able to effect change with that process. I got involved in the transition of South Africa from apartheid to democracy by being seconded during the first democratic elections in 1994. Uh, by the company to help make the first election happen. And that was such an interesting experience. I mean, it was firstly a very, very scary time. It was really dangerous. But I never really thought too much about that. I mean, I was five months pregnant at the time, and uh, it did freak me out a little bit that, you know, I had... It wasn't just my own life that I was making decisions about. But it was probably because I was pregnant that I felt even more compelled to make my work count for something to build a better future so that my unborn child and every other unborn child in South Africa could have something to look forward to. And so that was really what drove my passion at the time. And that was the context. What was amazing was during the time that i was in that sort of crucible of conflict and running the getting ready for the elections i kind of worked with all the political parties and i could really see how much expectation there was for the new south africa and it was really burdened by the responsibility on the rest of us to be cognizant of these expectations also be responsible about the promises that are made because there were unrealistic promises made by a lot of political parties very irresponsible to get votes yet it was important to then take all these insights back into the business world and say guys, we've got to do something different because this is not the end of apartheid. This is the beginning of a new South Africa. So how are we as business people going to show up and right some of the wrongs of the past? These kinds of businesses like BHP Billiton and so on, they made a lot of money on the back of apartheid, poor wages, all of that sort of thing. They had to give back and they had to build a new South Africa. So that was an opportunity that I saw to put forward a plan. And that plan was adopted about, I think I got a phone call 10 days after my my child was born to say, you know, that thing that you were talking about, you know, like, can you come and present that to the board? And I went, okay. So 10-day-old baby. And First baby. First baby. First baby and I um, then had to work up a presentation to put to the board in terms of the vision and they bought it and uh, soon after we started to establish the first community foundation in in South Africa and then the first community college and that became the Zululand Chamber of Business Foundation and I was the CEO of that and then later the chairman and it would became the biggest change agent in that region and so we used it as a vehicle for effecting community change and delivered many projects we used it also to create jobs to train people to empower entrepreneurs and to kind of create this coalition of NGOs so that together we could get further than each individually
0: It's funny, innovation is one of those words we hear about so much in business, but much of it's just incremental building on what's gone before, whereas what you're talking about is like starting with a clean sheet of paper and designing something completely new, and especially for you personally, presumably, you know, no one in South Africa had that experience before. So. How much do you think that has fed into the work that has come later, much of which has been around innovation and helping clients and companies see things in new ways?
1: Yeah, I haven't thought about that much. I guess what ends up happening is that when you're challenged with a really big problem, you realise that incremental won't get you there. And the other thing that that helps is urgency. So... When you really got a lot of constraints, it's kind of that moment when out-of-the-box thinking really comes in the most handy because I think incremental innovation is important. You need that all the time anyway. So that's just a mindset of continuous improvement. But the breakthroughs really come when you, have, when you really have to think at scale, And it's very hard to be formulaic about that because it's so driven by circumstance and what you've got available and what opportunities present themselves that you can turn on. In the case of the Zululand Chamber of Business Foundation, there was a number of opportunities that I saw as a lever that I could hitch and pull all the wagons in a circle and create something with that because it was about timing. And if that timing was just off, it wouldn't have happened, you know, or it would have been much harder. The work that I do here now is the same kind of thing. It's about being really observant, being culturally relevant, and understand what's the zeitgeist, what is current for people now? What is it that that is needed in the world? And then what are the conditions that you can actually use to your advantage? Because those are big things. I mean, sometimes getting the right skill and the right technology in place is not so hard, but it's these external forces that can be the make or break of a thing that um, is really important to understand and tap into. And and so I think to answer your question in a roundabout way, what I understand now looking back is that I've been a cultural observer for the longest time ever. And I think to a large extent being born curious, but then feeding curiosity as well. So I've traveled since I was very, very young and I have also instilled this in my children. So this curiosity to learn and to understand the world through other people's eyes, it creates empathy. And I think empathy is a great platform from which to innovate.
0: One of the things that you also seem to have done successfully is is look for diversity in the people that you work with. And I loved the way you talked about your advisory council having a range of different people, but also a range of different ages. So I think the youngest member is in their team. Yes. And the oldest is...
1: 94.
0: Why is age diversity important in workplaces and in
1: our outlook? Well, age diversity is important for the simple reason that at the younger end of the spectrum, people are optimistic and untainted by cynicism. And so you want that fresh, optimistic point of view that is untarnished by I told you so or we've tried this before, those kind of things, because there is an optimism and a hope, you know, that you can do anything. At the other end of the spectrum, there is, I think, people who are much older and who've stayed, intellectually active, so that would be quite an important proviso, I think it's important to stay intellectually active, that those people have the benefit of understanding that life is about cycles, they've seen cycles come and go, and so they have a resilience that they can teach younger people, or they have the benefit of being able to look at a really long time frame. Of course, you know, they also have lots and lots of experience to draw on. So I don't think that you could write people off based on age. The thing that you need to worry about when you're putting together any kind of a team is, are people intellectually curious? Because that is really what you're after, is they continuously learning I mean, you can have a diverse group of people, but if they're dull and not open and not seeking, you know, I'm not really sure that you're achieving what you set out to do. Diversity for the sake of diversity could fall short on your expectations if you don't look at the mindset. And the mindset is age independent.
0: When people come and seek your advice, as I'm sure they do often, what are the things that you tell them to focus on? And in particular, are there resources, books, courses, experiences that you point towards for them to take away and work on themselves?
1: I think that um, it's really important to create something. That would be my single biggest piece of advice to somebody is to not just be a consumer and a what I would call an amplifier of other people's things. That's important, but it's really important to have a go at something that is uniquely yours, where your creativity is expressed. And that could be as simple as a recipe that is like yours. You've adapted it and it's become known as Auntie Nancy's Christmas turkey or something like that. I mean, that's a true story. My aunt has the best turkey recipe. I'm happy to share or it is, you know, writing a book or it is building a startup or setting up an NGO, organizing an event. You know, it doesn't have to be complicated. But the more you practice this act of creation, the better you become at it and the more resilient you become and the better your problem-solving skills. Because in the future, the ability to stay Employed will be directly correlated to your ability to solve complex problems. And you learn that by creating something. And that would be my single biggest piece of advice to people.
0: Any books that you love that you would recommend, fiction or non fiction?
1: Oh, I have a poetry book that is so well worn that the the pages are falling off it. I think it's called the Metaphysical Poets. I bought it at a secondhand bookshop. And you keep going back to it? Oh, I keep going back to it. I um, it's sort of like a soul food or meditation and so on. I found a lot of personal value from um, two books: Viktor Frankl's *Man's Search for Meaning*. The other one was The Road Less Traveled by M. Scott Peck. I credit M. Scott Peck's book for probably helping me understand that the difference between codependent behavior and taking accountability for your own decisions, but also Understand that you're not necessarily responsible for everybody else's problems and having to rescue them. I was a little bit of a rescuer for much of my life. And, you know, you often see that in strong, capable women is that they carry so many people. And and then you can sometimes feel like, oh, well, that's what you're supposed to do and you don't have to. That was a big liberator for me in terms of understanding that... I am not responsible for the universe.
0: (laughs) And finally, do you have a hero and why are they a hero for you?
1: I have several heroes, but I'll pick one from popular culture so that lots of people can relate. And I think that um, Oprah Winfrey has done a great job of being a catalyst for people's self-empowerment. And that's what I love about her is that she's turned her life with all its flaws into a platform for learning. That's what she is. She's a platform for learning and she's empowered many, many people along the road and quite unselfishly so, yes. And she's also made good business out of it. But she puts her money back into society. She gives back a lot. So she's a great role model, I think. And I think the the world would be better if there were more of those.
0: Well, fantastic to spend some time with you and just love your insights. And um, keep enjoying New York.
1: Thank you so much. It's so wonderful to have you here. And I'd love to show you around.
0: Every week, I find a nugget of gold in each discussion, something I want to take away and implement in my own life. If you feel the same, I'd love to know how my guests touch your lives. You can leave a review on iTunes or get in touch on LinkedIn or Twitter. Thanks to the awesome Buffy Gorilla for production, Alicia Piper for her fantastic writing, and to Broke Free, who wrote and performed our theme music. See you next week.